Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number eight, Ruth chapter four, and the end of our study of Ruth. Well, we've got a great deal to cover today. So I'm not going to review our previous lesson, and since our study of Ruth is only eight lessons long, counting today's final lesson. I think if you want to go over it again, it's not too terribly long of a task. Well, we're going to be begin today by rereading the entire final chapter of Ruth to refresh our memories. Ruth chapter 4. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, it is page 1060. If you've got another version, um, it's more than likely immediately following the book of Judges. Meanwhile, Boaz had gone up to the gate and had sat down there, and when the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken passed by, such and such, he said, come over and sit down. So he came over and sat down, and he took ten of the city's uh, leaders and said, sit down here. And they sat down. And then he said to the redeeming kinsman, now the parcel of land which used to belong to our relative Elimelech is being offered for sale by Naomi who has returned from the plain of Moab and I thought I should tell you about it and say, buy it in the presence of the people sitting here and in the presence of the leaders of my people. If you want to redeem it, redeem it. But if it's not to be redeemed, then tell me so that I can know because there's no one else in line to redeem it and I'm after you. He said, I want to redeem it. Then Boaz said, The same day you buy this field from Naomi, you must also buy Ruth, the woman from Moab, the wife of the deceased son, in order to raise up in the name of the deceased an heir for his property. And the Redeemer said, Well, then I can't redeem it for myself, because I might put my own inheritance at risk. You take my right of redemption on yourself, because I can't redeem it. Well, in the past, this is what was done in Israel to validate all transactions involving redemption and exchange. A man took off his shoe and he gave it to the other party. This was the form of attestation in Israel. So the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself and took off his shoe. And Boaz addressed the leaders and all the people. You are witnesses today that I am purchasing from Naomi all that belong to Elimelech, all that belong to Kilion and Machlon. Also, I'm a, I am acquiring as my wife, Ruth, the woman from Moab, the wife of Machlon, in order to raise up in the name of the deceased an heir for his property, so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his kinsmen and from the gate of this place. You are witnesses today. All the people at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May Adonai make the woman who has come into your house like Rachel and like Leah, who between them built up the house of Israel. Do worthy deeds in Ephrat. Become renowned in Beit Lechem. May your house, because of the seed of Adonai, will give you from this one woman become, this young woman become like the house of Peretz, whom Tamar born to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he had sexual relations with her, and Adonai enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And then the women said to Naomi, 
Blessed be Adonai, who today has provided you a Redeemer. May His name be renowned in Israel. May He restore your life and provide for your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to Him. Naomi took the child, laid it on her breast, and became its nurse. The women who were her neighbors gave it a name. They said, a son has been born to Naomi. Call it Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Here is the genealogy of Peretz. Peretz was the father of Hetzron. Hetzron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadav. Aminadav was the father of Nachshon. Nachshon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, and Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed was the father of Yeshai, Jesse. And Yeshai, the father of David. Well, the legal process to determine just who would assume these duties as Naomi's family goel, the family redeemer that in Christendom is usually called the kinsman redeemer, it's begun now. Would it be Boaz or the unnamed, more senior relative who was first in line to be the goel? The morning after Ruth visited Boaz at the, fresh, at the threshing floor, Boaz went to the city gates of Bethlehem, waited for the senior family Goel to walk by, and also asked that ten of the recognized city elders attend the public proceeding so as to essentially validate and then notarize the outcome. Well, verse 3 begins a very difficult dialogue between Boaz and Mr. So-and-so. And it's very difficult to translate and make any sense out of it. Um, and this is because there is a strange changing of verb tenses regarding the current status of Naomi's land. Has it already been sold? Or is it only now being sold? Well, one verse seems to say that the selling had already occurred well before this meeting. And yet another verse seems to say that what is about to transpire at the city gate is the selling of the land. Now, because we always read this in English, of course, the difficulty of the Hebrew is sometimes masked because the translator of your particular English version made the decision that either the land was sold or it was in the process of being sold, and so made all the verb tenses neatly match in English to reflect his own personal conclusion about this matter. But there's even more trouble contained in these verses. And we talked about some of it last time. In summary, the trouble is this. The usual assumption by Christian scholars and commentators going back for centuries, is that Ruth and Boaz were about to engage in levirate marriage. And that this marriage solved the dilemma of the land transfer from Naomi by creating the needed heir, a son, 
that would eventually be born to Ruth and Boaz? Well, yes and no. You see, what transpires in these passages, frankly, does not carry out the detailed Torah commandments regarding elaborate marriage, nor the specific Torah-defined uh, Torah duties of a kinsman redeemer. Thus, many Bible scholars have simply decided that the text has been corrupted. Right? And they've used that as their reason to ignore what was actually written and then essentially create their own version of the story as a substitute. Now, I'm going to tell you that by doing that, it sure makes it a lot easier to study this final chapter of Ruth and a lot quicker. All right? But I also think we're missing a great deal by not trying to deal with the challenging text of Ruth just as it was recorded. Now, I hope by now that you are all starting to accept that the biggest problem we face today in understanding the Bible is that we're Westerners. Okay? And that the way we think and the way we reason was birthed in Greek culture. And even more specifically, in the Greek culture as practiced in the Western part of the Roman Empire. But what we read in the Bible is entirely based on Eastern culture. And on ancient Hebrew thinking patterns. Even the New Testament that admittedly was largely written in Greek, nonetheless was dictated by Hebrew individuals. All right, like Paul and Peter, who were Easterners. So trying to jot down Eastern cultural thinking patterns in Western Roman Greek language and alphabet is inherently difficult. And a lot gets lost in the translation. Now the good news is that about half of the passages of the New Testament are merely direct quotes taken from the Old Testament. So we can go back and cross-reference those Greek New Testament passages to their original Old Testament Hebrew counterparts and oftentimes get a lot better sense of how to understand them. But it still won't help much when studying the Bible until we train ourselves to think in the Eastern Hebrew thought patterns that were the basis for the scriptures in the first place. The notion that the Bible is so mystical and magical that culture and language and era and even context doesn't matter when reading it is absurd on its face and is only useful when one simply wants to teach a specific man-made religious doctrine right? as opposed to what the word of God just simply says now it's this exact issue that is at play especially in Ruth chapter 4 and so I'm going to delve into some depth into trying to decipher what's really happening among these Jewish Israelites who are bargaining at the city gates, as opposed to what it might seem must be happening to us modern Gentiles. Now first notice, in verse 3, that the person who is the central figure in this negotiation is Naomi, not Ruth. 
And this is because Naomi is the widow of Elimelech. Elimelech was the owner of the piece of land in question, and thus Naomi, the only survivor, now represents Elimelech's clan and family. But there's a problem. Does Naomi really own the land? Since her husband and both of her sons, who would have been the legal heirs of Elimelech's property, died. The short answer must be no. Because there is no provision in Torah law for a widow to inherit land from her deceased husband. Notice I didn't say there was no provision for a female to ever inherit land because indeed the daughters of Zelophchad pled their case to Moses because Zelophchad had no sons, only daughters. And Moses decided as God's earthly mediator that daughters could inherit their father's real property. But such is not the case with Naomi. The land in question belonged not to her father, it belonged to her husband. So the land was not Naomi's to hold. Saying it is Naomi's land is just a figure of speech, it's a simple common way of identifying the parcel and all the people involved. Now, For the people of that era, the issue of what happens to the family land of someone like Elimelech and his situation was a constant thought. Land was everything to an agricultural-based society. And it was especially so for Israel because the Lord God had embedded the principle that the original owner of a piece of the promised land was to maintain it in his family for how long? Forever. Let's be clear, though, that while the immediate family, extended family in our modern vocabulary, ideally always held on to that land, in reality, it was the clan to which that family belonged that was even more important. In other words, while the land could be transferred under a variety of circumstances, among the many separate families that formed a clan, it was always to stay within that clan. But the hierarchy of land ownership went even further. If by some calamity, the original family along with their entire clan were wiped out, or they were incapable of retaining the land, then the next best hope was the tribe to which that clan belonged. And if the clan's tribe were wiped out, or incapable of assuming the land, then some other Israelite tribe could control it. Even then, there were the laws of Jubilee that allowed for the return of the land debt-free at no cost to the original family or their descendants, although this opportunity only arose once every half century. Now further, even though I just spoke in common terms of land ownership, in reality no Israelite ever owned the land in the way we think of it today. Most 
ownership of land in the Western world uses a method called fee simple. Right? And it simply means that a person has absolute control and all rights to that land without limitation. And he can sell it whenever and to whomever he wants and such rights of ownership then transfer to that new owner in perpetuity. But an Israelite did not ever own the land of Israel. He merely owned the use of the land. He could dwell on it. He could grow crops on it. He could raise animals on it. The use of the land was to remain in his family and clan and tribe forever. But the fee simple owner of the land was God. I cannot say this strongly enough. Christians today rather sloppily throw around the phrase, well, my house belongs to the Lord. Or, or my car belongs to Jesus. Well, that might be true in a spiritualistic, idealistic, figurative sense. But God isn't on my title deed. Probably not on yours. Okay? Even if your church might be. And our modern laws do provide for fee simple ownership of land and chattel as the standard ownership principle. This was not the case with the promised land. God literally and tangibly was the legal owner of the land. And an Israelite family fully understood that they did not have a fee simple ownership of the plot of land upon which they dwelt, farmed, ranched. And this foundational principle was explicitly embodied in the law of Moses. So, what was Naomi's relationship with the property that's being discussed here? After all, this is pretty key to understanding both Naomi's predicament and her solution to her predicament. First, now that we better understand the laws of land inheritance in Israel, we must see that Naomi was not in legal possession of the land. For one thing, if she was in legal possession, why was she and Ruth in such poverty? For another, even if she wasn't physically able or didn't have the skills to farm the land, she certainly could have leased it out and attain some income, however meager. Second, if Naomi didn't control the land, who did? And when did someone else gain control of the land, and under what circumstances? See, the truth is, that only speculation about this is possible. As this issue is just not directly addressed in our story. As Frederick Bush, the editor of the World Biblical Commentary on Ruth, says, and I paraphrase, the author of this story and the people who read it in much earlier times had information and understanding about the circumstances that was probably common knowledge for them. And further, the circumstances themselves probably explained a very logical and usual course of action in that era that would have resulted from the peculiarities of this case. Thus, this whole scenario is muddled only to our Western Gentile minds, but not at all to the ancient Hebrews who lived near the time that the book of Ruth was written. I couldn't agree with that 
statement more. We don't often consciously realize it. But we take an enormous amount of things for granted in our daily conversations. Right? And even in books and news articles that are written and we read. If a contemporary story takes place in America and it speaks about a monetary transaction, there's no, to, no need to explain in detail that the moneta- monetary denomination used was a dollar or what a dollar is or that the dollar went off the gold standard years ago, or that the dollar has a fluctuating and relative value, and so on and so forth. Okay. If the article's about American food, it's not necessary to explain what is defined as food, and what's not. Beef or bread is food, worms and plankton's not. But in future times, the conditions will likely be radically different. And such precise definitions of what food is, what money is, is going to change. And a new normal is going to exist. And the one from 1,000 years earlier is going to be completely forgotten. Further, when a person in 3009 reads about things going on in Florida in 2009 it is going to be quite necessary for him to research to understand just what the conditions were at this time. And what certain words meant in our day, because languages steadily evolve. And what the laws were, and so on. Are they going to miss, entirely miss, what's being communicated? We face that problem every time we open the Bible. And nowhere is it better demonstrated than here, and the fourth chapter of Ruth and the matter of this land inheritance issue. Now since it can only be that Naomi did not possess the land and had no right to hold it or dispose of it because she wasn't a legal heir, then one of two things was occurring at Bethlehem city gates. Either the land was in the possession of some other unnamed person who had legally acquired it at some earlier point from Elimelech when he was alive. And thus the purpose of Boaz is the, uh, or, or that anonymous senior Goel that he was negotiating with, was to redeem it back from that unnamed owner. The other choice is, that Naomi's arrival back at Bethlehem signaled that it was time for the land issue and Ada Molech's family to be decided by the clan's nearest next of kin. Okay? The families go well. So that a clan member officially took control of that land as a matter of preemption. In other words, the first situation as a possibility, is one of getting the land returned to the family or clan, redeeming it back. The second situation is a matter of keeping the land from getting transferred out of the family or clan by means of a near relative purchasing it, preempting the possibility of its sale outside of the clan. So which one of these was going on here? Okay, Clearly, It just doesn't seem credible that the land was just sitting there, unused, going fallow, 
for no other reason than by the strictest legal sense that because Elimelech and his sons had died that there was no legal heir to inherit it. Especially since Elimelech's surviving widow and daughter-in-law were obviously recognized by this entire community as being Elimelech's legitimate family members. Certainly the entire basis of this story is lost if Naomi still had some control over that land or more correctly control of the use of it. For one thing, a person who has land has no right to glean off of somebody else's field. Thus it can only be that the land had been sold at some earlier point and now it was necessary to get it back into the family and clan by means of redemption. Now it could be one possibility of how that happened. It could be that when Elimelech was leaving Judah for Moab that he sold it, or better, the use of it to somebody outside of his family. Maybe even outside of his clan. Because if a clan member, his own clan member, had purchased it by rights when Elimelech or his legal heir was available to reclaim it, it had to be returned to the original owner according to the laws of Torah. In fact, this reality plays a critical role in what this unnamed senior Goel sitting in opposition to Boaz here in our story ultimately decides to do with this opportunity to redeem that land. So it can only be that someone outside of Elimelech's clan had purchased that land. Either upon Elimelech leaving for Moab, perhaps sometime while he was still living there, because we read about how they got into a very bad situation over there. Therefore, if a member of another clan of Judah purchased it from Elimelech some years earlier, and now Naomi's return from Moab triggers the issue that somebody from Elimelech's clan ought to redeem that land back to the original family, according to the law of Moses, the current owner was owed money by the man of Elimelech's clan who would sign up to be the Goel, the Redeemer. Now I know this has probably got your head spinning around. But I remind you that the people of Ruth's, for the people of Ruth's era, this was just common knowledge. This was just common procedure. So the situation is this. A member of another clan, likely another clan of the tribe of Judah, currently holds possession of Elimelech's land. Naomi, his widow, has returned from Moab as a childless widow and now pushes the issue of how to get the land returned to the clan and if at all possible to her family. The importance of this issue is fully recognized by all the community of Bethlehem so is Naomi's plight recognized. Now this also brings up the question how's Ruth involved in all this? And the answer is that in 
verse 5, we hear Boaz tell Mr. So-and-so that if he agrees to redeem Naomi's farmland, he's also going to have to marry Naomi's daughter-in-law. Who says so? Why? The answer is at the end of the same verse. In order to raise up the name of the deceit for the deceased and heir for his property. Now that statement raises two more issues. How does Ruth having a child solve the issue of land for Naomi? And two, by what law is there an obligation for Mr. So-and-so to marry Ruth simply because he agrees to redeem the land? Where'd that come from? Again, most Christian scholars going back centuries have said that Boaz married Ruth due to the obligations of Leverite marriage laws. Boom, solves the problem. And that the kinsman redeemer had the legal duty to redeem the land, so that solved the land problem. But neither is actually true, according to the laws of Moses. Okay, let's dissect this a little bit and see if we can come to some uh, conclusions about it. Now, first of all, as I said in an earlier lesson, Leverite marriage plays no role in this story whatsoever. Okay? Leverite marriage applies only to the brother of the deceased man who is legally obligated to marry his dead brother's widow. There is no extension of this responsibility to any other family member to perform that duty. It is simply not contained in the Torah. Further, while there is an obligation of the family redeemer, the Goel, to redeem land, to keep it in the clan, there's no law of Torah that requires him to marry anybody. It doesn't require him to father a child, to produce an heir for a deceased man. Thus, neither situation applies. And we are left scratching our heads as to why All this drama is playing out at the city gates and why it's unfolding like this. In verse 6, the senior kinsman redeemer, this anonymous man, tells Boaz that while he'd be happy to buy the land to redeem it, he also cannot marry Ruth. Because for some reason, it would put his own inheritance at risk. Why would marrying Ruth cause his personal inheritance to be put into jeopardy? told you this is going to get complex. I'm going to tell you the answer to that momentarily. But first I want to explain something to you. What we are seeing from a much broader view is that there is no specific command of God that either Boaz or Mr. So-and-so would find themselves actually breaking if one or the other didn't marry Ruth, give her an heir, and even to a degree if they didn't redeem the land. The circumstances of this case just don't directly apply to the laws of liberate marriage or land redemption. So what's the point of this whole exercise? Well, one of the major things that all generations of God's people, Israelite or Gentile believers, can learn from this story of Ruth 
is how to carry out God's justice and mercy even when none of the 613 laws of Torah seems to directly apply. And how you manage to do that is by doing something that I've discussed with you on scores of occasions. We discern God's principles that undergird all of His laws and commandments. God tells us that the basis for the Ten Commandments the basis for the Ten Commandments is you shall love Jehovah your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That undergirds everything. And that just as the Ten Commandments are built on that foundation, so are all of His laws built upon the Ten Commandments. So, when we're at point A... And we have on our hands a matter that demands our attention and our action. It's in our court to figure out how to get to point B. A solution. And under many circumstances, we can simply point to one of the Ten Commandments, maybe one of the 613 laws, and it will give us a good and proper route to get from point A to point B. But under many more circumstances, that route's not obvious. Right? Or there is certainly no non-stop flight. Point A in the book of Ruth is that Naomi and Ruth are poverty-stricken widows who have no children and thus have no hope. Co-located at point A is that the land that belonged to Elimelech is in the hands of somebody outside of his clan. Point B is to find a way to care for Naomi and Ruth along with a way to have the land redeemed. But how do we get there? The most important thing to take from this is that as God's followers, it's our moral obligation to find a way that is consistent with God's principles even if it's not directly covered by one of His laws. And I contend this is a position that the Hebrews found themselves in regularly and we as Christians find ourselves in regularly as well. Darn near every day. Now let's rotate now back to Mr. So-and-so who decided that it would cause his own inheritance to be put into question if he married Ruth. Well, here's what happened. See, he was happy to redeem the land and add it to his family's own wealth that would be eventually passed along to his descendants. You see, since Elimelech had no heir, which was point A in this whole story, the family Goel, the family redeemer who redeemed the land, got to keep it. He got to keep the land, at least theoretically, until the year of Jubilee. Mr. So-and-so knew full well that Elimelech had no heir. That was common knowledge all over Bethlehem. Thus, whatever money this senior Goel paid to this mystery man, who currently owned Elimelech's land, it would be well spent for him. Because Mr. So-and-so would now possess 
Elimelech's land for himself and for his posterity. This is great. He says, oh yes, I'll redeem it. I love it. He was very anxious to conclude that bargain. But then Boaz threw him the old curveball. Accepting the obligation as the family redeemer also meant that Mr. So-and-so would have to marry Ruth. And from Ruth would come an heir for her dead husband, Machlon, son of Elimelech. And because now there is an heir, Mr. So-and-so would be obligated to give the land that he just paid money for to Ruth's son. He'd be out the money, out the land, and of course, this would diminish his own wealth, called an inheritance, all right, and thus diminish what he could ever pass along to his family. Bottom line, the senior Goel would pay redemption money for land he'd soon have to give back to Ruth's son. And remember, this son would not be considered his own son, but rather this son would be considered as Machlon's son. The senior Goel would thus get no benefit from paying money for the land or for marrying Ruth, so he declined. And he deferred to Boaz, who had already said he'd be happy to do it all. So, from a legal standpoint, Elimelech's land was posthumously inherited by his son, Machlon. Now follow me. Machlon's dead. Okay. And then by means of Machlon's widow, Ruth, marrying a qualified family Goel, a proper heir would be created for Machlon. Thus the land passed from Elimelech to his son Machlon, from Machlon to the first son born to Ruth and the family redeemer. The line was now connected from point A to point B, even if it was hardly a straight line. What we find out is that whoever agrees to be the Goel has the duty to perform all the obligations incumbent upon the Redeemer. He can't do some of them and refuse to do the rest. We also find out that at some point before the era of Ruth, the same kind of issues of how to deal with childless widows were dealt with by Israel's leaders because there was a void in the law of Moses for, for these cases. And so they created a tradition, a man-made rule, that a childless widow who had no brother-in-law to marry her could marry any family member who agreed to be the family redeemer. And this marriage could then produce the needed heir for her deceased husband. And even more, the widow Ruth would now have a husband to care for her. And by custom, her mother-in-law Naomi would be lovingly cared for by Boaz and Ruth. The marriage of Ruth to Boaz solves all the problems that the story of Ruth presents us with. Well, the senior Goel decides to cede his rights to Boaz and then hands his sandal to Boaz is a symbolic gesture used in that era to seal the deal. And the ten attending elders attest to this arrangement. And at that moment, or more accurately, once he pays the money to this unknown possessor of the land, 
the land of Elimelech is redeemed back into the clan. Further, Boaz agrees that the first son born to he and Ruth will be in the name of the deceased. Now let's be clear that name, the word name, Shem, in Hebrew, does not mean name like in Bradford or Cherry or Smith or Jones. Rather, it means attributes. It means characteristics. It, 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 it's, it's the right of inheritance, all embodied, all right, in establishing a descendant. Okay. Then after the elders publicly notarize this agreement, they pronounce a prayer and a blessing over Boaz and, and Ruth, asking that God would make them very fruitful in children and descendants, like, like Leah and Rachel did for Jacob. And it's an interesting choice of women's names, by the way, to invoke, because Rachel and Leah had something in common with Ruth. They were all Gentiles before their Hebrew husbands married them. It's hard to get away from the fact that Gentiles have always played a key role in building up the nation of Israel and in their redemption. In fact, when even the name of Tamar is mentioned in the genealogy here to end the book, as the mother of Peretz, Judah being the father, she too was a Gentile woman. And Peretz is mentioned because he was an ancestor of Boaz. Well, now the challenges of the final chapter of Ruth don't end with the legal proceedings at the city gates of Bethlehem. Because in staccato fashion, we're told Boaz and Ruth had the son that was needed to keep the line of Mahlon alive, and in doing so also kept the line of Elimelech from coming to a dead end. The thing is that verse 14 plainly states that this son of Ruth is seen by the women of Bethlehem as what? A redeemer for who? Naomi. See, this passage is another that causes Bible scholars to conclude that this must be a corrupt text. Because up to now, Boaz has been the redeemer, and thus they say it's not Ruth's child, but Boaz that this ought to be referring to. That's nonsense. In fact, this verse links perfectly with the equally perplexing verse 17. It says that it was these same women of Bethlehem who named Naomi's son. Did you get that? Not Ruth's son, but Naomi's son. Not only that, but nowhere in the Bible do we find anyone but the mother and perhaps the father on a couple of occasions giving their own child its name. Neighbors naming your child was unheard of. But you see, that's what's so fantastic about the book of Ruth. The whole community of Bethlehem knew that in some strange way, the marriage of Ruth and Boaz and this resultant firstborn son was far more significant than merely concerning this private family matter of restoring the Elimelech clan line and their land. 
this matter was profound. It was far-reaching in ways they could sense would affect them, but they really didn't know how. And of course, in retrospect, we know that this son went on to be the grandfather of the future King David, and from David's line came the even more future redeemer of the whole world, Yeshua of Nazareth. Now let me also point out an important grammatical technicality. What verse 14 says, when it says that the, the women said, to, uh, said that Yehovah had provided Naomi with a redeemer, it is probably much more accurate to translate it as that Naomi was provided with redemption. Because the Hebrew word that is usually translated as redeemer is goel. But geal is what's used here. And it's a verb. It means redeeming, not redeemer. In other words, the intent is not to indicate a person but rather an action, a behavior. So the intent is not to name Ruth's first son as Naomi's kinsman redeemer in the same mold as was Boaz. Now as a handkeeping, uh, housekeeping matter, we're just about done. The reference to the first son of Ruth as being Naomi's son is just a common way of speaking on a number of levels in that era. First, the word for son is what? Ben. And one of its many and varied uses in the Bible is as grandson. But on another level, this grandson more or less legally replaced Naomi's deceased son, Mahlon. And yet on another level, since Naomi was the widow of the deceased Elimelech, by the legal fiction of designating this male child of Ruth as Naomi's son, it also made him Elimelech's son, and thus established the proper heir of Elimelech's line. Now trust that I'm not speaking allegory to you. I'm not convoluting the storyline to try to make it all fit. Quite the contrary. I'm explaining to you the Hebrew thought pattern and the cultural norms for that time. And that's why we need to take this story as it is and not try to remake it to suit our doctrines. The name the women gave the son was Oved, which means worshiper. Or it also means the serving one. And the book ends with Oved's descendants. But first traces his ancestors back to Peretz, son of Judah, by Tamar. Again, notice, the messianic line begins with a Gentile woman, Tamar. And then makes a significant turn with yet another Gentile woman, Ruth. Of course, both of these Gentile women are drawn into the community of set-apart people, Israel, in one way or another. Oved is the father of Jesse. Jesse is the father of David. Thus, the validity of King David's line and right to the throne is established by means of the story of Ruth. 
and the expectation of a mysterious redeemer that would affect not just Elimelech's line, but the entire community is presented here. But let's not let one other connection zoom by us. The son of Ruth, the one who redeems, was born where? Bethlehem. And then perhaps 125 years later or so, that son's grandchild, King David, would be born in Bethlehem. And then a thousand years after that, Joseph and Miriam, who lived far to the north, up in Nazareth of Galilee, found themselves at exactly the right moment in Bethlehem. And there in the same place that Oved and David were brought into this world, so was Yeshua the Messiah. That ends the story of Ruth.